0: This is the last session and the closing address. Uh, you've uh, had a long day, but I think you'll enjoy the closing address, and uh, it's interesting to have a central banker uh, following the free market money people. Uh, it's a pleasure to have Richard Fisher as our closing speaker. Mr. Fisher became president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas on April 4, 2005, succeeding uh, our old friend Bob McTeer and he serves as a member of the Federal Open Market Committee. Uh, Prior to becoming the bank's president, Mr. Fisher was vice chairman of Kissinger McLarty Associates and senior advisor of the FCM Investors in Dallas, which is an investment advisory firm, uh, which he founded in 1987. From 1997 to 2001, Mr. Fisher was deputy U.S. trade representative and a senior member of the team that negotiated the U.S.-China and U.S.-Taiwan bilateral agreements for accession to the World Trade Organization. He also just told me that he was in China uh, back in 1978, uh, which uh, was really in the uh, old ages in China. Uh, He's an honorary fellow of Hartford College at uh, Oxford University and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In October 2006, he received the Service to Democracy Award in the Dwight D. Eisenhower Medal for Public Service from the American Assembly. In April 2009, he was inducted into the Dallas Cowboys Hall of Fame. Whoops, I meant uh, Dallas Business Hall of Fame. (laughs) He wishes it was the Dallas Cowboy Hall of Fame. Uh, Born in L.A., Mr. Fisher grew up in Mexico. His father was Australian and his mother South African. He attended the Naval Academy, Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford. Uh, and he also ran for the U.S. Senate twice. I'm not sure if you'd rather be in the Senate these days or at the Fed. Um, please help me welcome Mr. Fisher. Thank you.
1: It was all very nice to you mention my horrible political career running for the United States Senate. And I will tell you that um, it is an honor to speak here. My father-in-law was arguably the most conservative member of Congress for many, many years. His name is Jim Collins, total libertarian. Uh, as you know, we don't believe in big government in Texas. I told my wife this morning, my father in has passed away. She is her father's daughter, that I was speaking at Cato. And I said, in your wildest dreams, did you ever think I would be speaking at the Cato Institute? You know what her response was? Richard, we've been married 36 years. You don't appear in my wildest dreams. <laughs> Um, What a humbling experience. Sometimes it helps to uh, contemplate economic predictions and predicaments by seeking wisdom from definitively non-economic sources. Consider this passage from Book 3 of Milton's Paradise Lost, where God answers the question of why he created men and angels who would rebel against him. Of man, he responds, quote, I made him just and right, sufficient to have stood, though free to fall. Such I created all the ethereal powers and spirits, both them who stood and them who failed. Freely they stood who stood and fell who fell, end of quote. As is clear from this most celebrated work of literature, the issue of whether entities, be they mortal or divine, should be allowed to fail is one of the oldest philosophical quandaries. It has been debated for eons on much higher planes than economics or finance. And yet, Milton is, in my mind, germane to the subject of this conference, restoring global financial stability. There is no way, in my opinion, that we can reasonably expect to restore global financial stability without addressing the vexing issue of institutions considered too big to fail. So I'm going to focus my comments today on this issue. I do so very much as a Lone Ranger. You would expect nothing less from a Texan. I'm merely one of 17 who currently sit at the table for the policy deliberations of the Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC. I speak only for myself and the Dallas Fed and not for any other policymaker or individual or division of the Federal Reserve. Only a short while ago, we were teetering on the brink of financial collapse. Essentially, what occurred, in my opinion, was a crisis of unintended consequences. Misperceptions of risk and misplaced incentives led to misguided actions. The crisis metastasized in large financial institutions and spread through the entire body of the financial system. Both on and off balance sheets, banks levered up to cancerous levels and funneled funds into assets of questionable quality. These bad bets were made worse by their scale and by the rapidity with which they spread. It was not enough for one or two large institutions erroneously to think that real estate prices would rise forever. Nearly all of the biggest banks did. It was not enough that one or two large institutions thought they could contract with third parties that they presumed would immunize them against failure. Nearly all of them did. And it was not enough for one or two regulators to turn a blind eye to the systemic risk posed by this behavior. Nearly all did, including the Federal Reserve. This is not anything new. Readers of history might recall Charles McKay's 1841 tome on the memoirs of extraordinary popular delusions, in which he wrote, and I quote, Every age has its peculiar folly, some scheme or fantasy into which it plunges, spurned on by the love of gain, the necessity of excitement, or the mere force of imitation, to which he caustically added, men think in herds, and it will be seen that they go mad in herds. Or they might have noted this from Badgett's essay on Edward Gibbon in the National Review in 1856. At particular times, people have a great deal of money. They seek for someone to devour, it, and there is a plethora. It finds someone, and there is speculation it is devoured, and there is panic, end of quote. Or my favorite from Dickens where he defined insurance as a person who can't pay gets another person who cannot pay to say that he can pay. How different things might have been if financial actors had kept the most human instincts of love of gain and necessity of excitement from leading them to become accomplices to the herd-like imitation and to uninsurable speculation that took place. This behavior begat a panic where but for the intervention of the Federal Reserve and other central banks, the entire payment system froze and brought the world economy within a hair's breadth of depression. Having staved off the inevitable consequence of the pathology that I just quickly summarized, it's high time, in my opinion, to treat the most malignant of its perpetrators. Financial institutions thought to be too big to fail as we go about refashioning and modernizing and provided needed improvements to the regulatory system. Governor Dan Turillo of the Federal Reserve Board recently put it this way in a speech. Quote, the regulatory system did not come close to adequately accounting for the impact of trading, securitization, and some other capital market activities on both traditional banking and systemic risk. The need for a thorough overhaul of the financial regulatory system is thus borne out not only by our frighteningly close brush with financial collapse, but also by the degree to which too-big-to-fail perceptions and capital market sources of systemic risk have been permitted, if not encouraged, by regulatory developments in the preceding decades, end of quote. From the perspective of monetary policy, I view of paramount interest an overhaul of the system that has come to coddle such, quote, too-big-to-fail perceptions and capital market sources of dynamic risk. My colleague Harvey Rosenblum at the Dallas Fed and I explained why in the opinion section of the Wall Street Journal on September 28th in an essay that we entitled, The Blob That Ate Monetary Policy. We noted that the very existence of the blob of banks considered too big to fail blocks or seriously undermines the mechanism through which monetary policy influences the economy. When the Fed encounters rising unemployment and slowing growth, as you know, it purchases Treasury securities, thus lowering interest rates and inducing banks to lend more and borrowers to spend more. The banking system and the capital markets that respond to these same signals are critical to transmitting Federal Reserve policy actions into changes in economic activity. These links normally function fairly smoothly. Numerous academic studies have concluded that monetary policy before the financial crisis was working better and faster and more predictably than it had just a few decades ago. Monetary policy's increased effectiveness helped usher in a quarter century of unprecedented macroeconomic stability with infrequent and mild recessions and low inflation. This was perhaps the closest we have come to economic paradise. But then the blob gummed up the works. With financial markets in trouble and the economy wobbling, the Fed, as you know, began to lower interest rates two years ago, bringing it close to zero in December of 2008. Other central banks followed suit. Based on recent experience, such aggressive policies should have returned our economy to the trajectory of stability and growth more quickly. Unfortunately, the blob began blocking the channels monetary policy uses to influence the real economy. As the financial crisis erupted, the largest banks by capitalization and influence saw their capital bases erode, and wary financial markets made them pay dearly for new capital in order to shore up their balance sheets. In this environment, monetary policy's interest rate channel operated perversely. The real borrowing costs that matter most for the economy's recovery, those paid by businesses and by individuals and by households, rose rather than fell. Those banks with the greatest toxic asset losses were the quickest to freeze or reduce their lending activity. Their borrowers faced higher interest rates and restricted access to funding when these banks raised their margins to ration the limited loans available or to reflect their own higher cost of funds as markets began to recognize the systemic risk posed by banks that were once considered too big to fail. The credit channel also narrowed because undercapitalized banks, especially those writing off or recognizing massive losses, must shrink and not grow their balance sheets and their private sector loans. Too big to fail institutions account for nearly half of the U.S. banking sector, and the industry is even more highly concentrated in the European Union. Small banks, most of them well capitalized, simply don't have the capacity to quickly offset shrinking lending activity at the behemoth banks. This problem is exacerbated by the pro-cyclical nature of bank capital regulation, which operates on the implicit assumption that banks get into trouble one or two at a time. Bank capital regulation provides some uh, microeconomic incentives, but destabilizing macroeconomic outcomes when a large number of very large banks are simultaneously in trouble. The balance sheet channel depends on falling interest rates to push up the value of homes and stocks and bonds and other assets, creating a positive wealth effect that stimulates spending. When the financial crisis pushed interest rates and spreads perversely high, balance sheet deleveraging took place instead, with households and businesses cutting their debt at a time when stimulative efforts were needed to prop up the macroeconomy. Falling interest rates, all else equal, usually nudge down the dollar's value against other currencies, opening an exchange rate channel for monetary policy that boosts exports and tempers imports. In the financial crisis, the dollar rose for about nine months relative to the euro, not against the yen, by the way, but relative to the euro and the pound. And this unusual behavior partly reflected higher interest rates and no doubt some flight to quality, but probably had more to do with the perception that financial conditions at the very largest banks were worse in the UK and worse in the rest of Europe than in the United States. Finally, the troubles of mega-financial institutions interfered with the capital market channel. In past crises, large companies had the alternative of issuing bonds when troubled banks raised rates or curtail lending. In the past decade, however, deregulation allowed mega banks to become major players in the capital markets. The dead weight of their toxic assets diminished the capacity of markets to keep debt and equity capital flowing to businesses, and it scared investors away. Obstructions in the monetary policy channels worsened a recession that we all know has now proven to be longer and by many measures more painful than any in the post-World War II period. With its conventional policy tools blocked, the Fed resorted to unprecedented measures, opening new channels to bypass the blocked ones and restore the economy's credit flows. In summary, the blob reduced the effectiveness of monetary policy's transmission mechanisms. To be sure, the Fed found ways, under Ben Bernanke's adroit leadership, to bypass those blockages by undertaking unorthodox policies, it would be dishonest of me to say that I have not supported many of those initiatives, but it would be disingenuous of me to deny that these measures carry great and unprecedented risk. They give rise to questions about the Federal Reserve's commitment to its traditional mandate. They give rise to suspicions that we are undertaking fiscal-like initiatives. They give rise to concerns that these initiatives might compromise our independence by putting us on the road to political perdition. At a minimum, they bloat our balance sheet, requiring us to now craft and articulate an exit strategy that might even take us further from our traditional practices. And they give rise to occasional panelists to call for the euthanasia of people like me. (laughs) In my view, the sooner we're able to return to traditional policymaking, the better. I do not believe we can do so without treating the pathology of Too Big to Fail. So I'm a keen student of the various remedies that have been prescribed. They break essentially down into two camps, the Learn to Live with them camp and the Get Rid of them camp. The Learn to Live with them camp bases its position on a presumption that we derive economic value from large firms, especially in a globalized world where businesses need transnational services delivered efficiently. Only this week, if you were reading the FT, Uh, or the Wall Street Journal, you would see that the CEO of Deutsche Bank, speaking in Frankfurt, restated the argument that big banks provide, quote, the necessary means for financing growth and innovation because they can most efficiently provide loans and services like cash management and foreign exchange trading for big international companies. Thoughtful proponents of this approach recognize the benefits of super large banks. From formerly traditional banks like Citigroup, to the newly converted ones, like Goldman Sachs. And they recognize that they come with risks that must be corralled. According to members of this camp, the corralling may be achieved through a, a mixture of various tools, including increased capital requirements and credible loss structures for unsecured creditors, as well as shareholders, the issuance of debt and contingent uh, conversion to equity requirements, what some have taken to calling cocoa bonds, policies to conserve capital such as dividend restrictions, compensation, uh, regulation, and a well articulated and practicable resolution regimes that will f- facilitate the proper burial of large failed institutions rather than allowing for an indefinite stay of execution. Essentially, the proponents of this approach understand the fallibility of regulatory institutions and the permeability of rules and capital requirements, but they believe that they can be improved upon. So that's the keep-em school. Members of the get-rid-em school do not believe that there is any other way aside from their own to treat the moral hazard created by a too-big-to-fail culture that inculcates the privatization of gains and the socialization of losses, what some refer to as the uh, heads I win, tails you lose proposition. They understand the academic and the management theories that posit the benefits of size and sophistication, especially in a globally interconnected world. They also accept that banks need to invest their own capital, and they need to hedge against investments that flow naturally from their underlying banking business. But they're wary of the distortions they believe derive from having government guarantees of deposits and other underpinnings of public trust underwrite additional risk-taking ventures, such as proprietary trading. In trying to develop my own perspective for this presentation. I return to Milton's prose. The stanza from Paradise Lost that falls closely upon the one I read at the beginning of this monologue is as follows quote I form them free and free they must remain till they enthrall themselves. I else must change their nature and revoke the high degree and decree which ordained their freedom. They themselves ordained their fall. End of quote. The Fed, like other regulators and the Congress that will ultimately fashion a new regulatory regime designed to treat too big to fail and other problems, is far from divine. That may shock you. We are a worldly institution created to further the efficiency of mammon's great agent of capitalism, what I consider to be the most effective vehicle for economic and social progress. I'm a disciple of Schumpeterian creative destruction, I accept that painful as it may be, destruction of errant or inefficient economic agents must occur for progress to take place in a capitalist society, that without failure there can be no good. Therefore, in the words of Milton, I would say that regulations should be designed to enable financial institutions to be sufficient to have stood, though free to fall. Overall, I would recommend that the treatment for too big to fail be crafted with the late Irving Crystal in mind. Now, Kristol was no Milton, nor was he an economist. He was nonetheless a very wise man whose writings in a journal called The Public Interest had an enormous influence on me as a young man and on my approach to problem-solving. In writing his eulogy in The New York Times this past September, David Brooks summarized him this way, quote, Kristol grew up in a working-class neighborhood and seems to have absorbed the elemental Jewish commandment, don't be a schmuck. Don't fall for fantastical notions that have nothing to do with with the way people really are, end of quote. To me, it is a fantastical notion to ignore the dynamic that leads business and financial organizations to want to grow to become the biggest and the most profitable. It's a fantastical notion to assume that smart bankers will not take advantage of government guarantees to customers or creditors for one part of their business, to incur risk and higher returns in another part as long as they are allowed to do so. It's a fantastical notion to expect that the law of unintended consequences can be repealed and that mortals, be they bankers or regulators, will not henceforth miscalculate risk or take misguided actions. It's a fantastical notion to expect that having once pulled poorly run, systemically threatening firms out of the fire, the government won't do it again no matter how many times and how loudly it says it will not. It seems to me that to craft a smart solution to this vexing problem of banks considered too big to fail requires that we deal with the way people and businesses really are. To me, this means finding ways not to live with them and getting on with developing the least disruptive way to have them divest those parts of their franchises, such as proprietary trading, that place the deposit and lending function at risk and otherwise present conflicts of interest but we can't stop there our supervisory structure must ensure that these institutions do not have the opportunity or the incentive to grow again to too big to fail status activities that present risk to taxpayers must be contained using at least some of the tools proposed by the learn to live with them camp increased capital requirements or living wills or cocoa bonds and the like we would also be well served to roll back various pieces of the government's safety net forcing creditors of risky non-bank behavior to bear the full cost of their actions. These higher requirements could act as a tax or a disincentive to bigness, and if structured properly could provide a useful break on the dynamic that leads to reckless growth and unmanageable complexity in institutions. Now, I know this conclusion will hardly endear me to the handful of big institutions that are commonly viewed as too big to fail, but I think it's best to take a lesson from Paradise Lost, and revoke the high decree which ordained their freedom, for after all, they themselves ordained their fall. And with that, Jim, I think I'll stop. And in the best tradition of central bankers, I will proceed to avoid answering any questions you have.
0: Thank you very much. <laughs> you a sure. Yeah. So uh, Mr. Fisher is going to take a couple of questions.
1: Yes, sir on my far right wing. Can I get a glass of water? The question, I don't think it was amplified, if I may repeat it, sir, is my view on Senator God's proposal and whether or not basically supervisory activity is important for us to conduct our business. Uh, Jim was unkind enough to mention that I ran for the U.S. Senate. It's actually one long slog, by the way. I ran as a Democrat with uh, Ann Richards as my running mate, and I was defeated by George Bush and Kay Bailey Hutchison. Uh, before that, I ghostwrit a a book. I ghost wrote a book called United We Stand for a man named Ross Perot. Before that, I married the daughter of the most conservative Republican congressman in the House. This much I've learned from that experience. Never comment on the proposals of somebody uh, in the Senate or the House. Thank you.
0: <laughs>
1: yes, sir. Were you the one calling for me to be euthanized? Yes, sir. Oh, okay. I'm not the only one. Oh, okay. I feel much more comfortable. Well, I agree with that, uh, that we should not have financial institutions that are sheltered from the forces of creative destruction like you. I'm a good Schumpertarian. Good. What I want to know is why would you exempt central banks? They never seem to fail no matter what. Mm. They do fail when they're politicized. I'll give you examples. They don't go away. Well, wait, hold on. Let me answer, let me answer the question. And I appreciate your statement disguised as a question. Um, We have plenty of historical precedent. Bismarck was warned when they created the Reichsbank that occasionally a central bank that's independent can be a political nuisance. You know the history probably better than I do. His intervention in their activity eventually led to the Weimar Republic and the huge uh, intervention of protectionism that followed, and then in France, and then by Benjamin Harrison here in the United States, led to one of the longest depressions of all time, 26 years. We have examples also of nationalist China, uh, by the way, where I was manufactured. My parents left there just before I was born. Uh, And we have examples of Argentina, the Weimar Republic, and I can give you one after another. It strikes me that there is a value to an independent central bank. And I believe that the central bank, even though we live in a fiat currency world, what I call faith-based currency, uh, which is everywhere, not just in the United States, I think it's very important to conduct itself in a way that deserves the public respect. I believe in its function. I believe it's a function that needs to be performed, and I believe it should be the least politicized as possible. But uh, therefore, obviously, I'm not arguing for my own euthanasia, as you proposed. Yes, in the back, the gentleman uh, there in the white shirt. Given the recent rise of gold with foreign central banks diversifying out of uh, dollars into gold, uh, recent critical comments by Chinese authorities and government deficits both on and off balance sheet promised into the indefinite future, do you think the dollar status as the international reserve currency is being called into question? Is it being called into question by you? No. Um, I won't comment on the dollar specifically. However, I will comment on your comment. Um, First of all, if you look at the accounts, central banks of other countries are not selling dollars, they are buying dollar securities. So check your facts. Secondly, I believe you are referring to the Bank of India's purchase of several metric tons, 100 metric tons of gold. And I believe you are referring to the gold price being set well above $1,000. Uh, I used to be a A funds manager, as you know, or do not know, I started at Brown Brothers Harriman as a foreign exchange advisor and then the fixed income department, and then I built their business in Texas. I ran their portfolios, did their M&A business, and I created my own firm, and I ran a hedge fund for 10 years and earned a 26% return per annum. So I think I know a little bit about markets, but not very much. Um, It strikes me that in a low interest rate environment, a commodity like gold is not unattractive. The opportunity costs are nil, and the carrying costs are almost nil. So I don't spend a lot of time worrying about the price of gold. I don't believe it's signaling anything about inflation, and, in fact, right now our problem is excess capacity. I'm very well aware, as you may know, as reputedly the most hawkish member of the Open Market Committee, of the potential for the large reserve accumulation that's occurred on our balance sheet when velocity picks up to create some inflationary pressures. I'm very wary of that. I don't see it presently, and I see enormous excess capacity, enormous unemployment, and significant disinflationary and deflationary forces at work worldwide. So I don't impute into the price of gold concerns about inflation. I am wary about what the Chinese have said. I understand their perspective. They wish to protect their investment. After all, they have a significant amount invested in U.S. Treasuries, and they keep buying more. So um, I'm not offended by their comments. I welcome them. It keeps us on our toes. As to the deficit, that's a fiscal matter. I may have once wanted to be someone that created laws and invented taxes and spent people's money. Thank God I didn't become one. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful. No, but I'm grateful for what they do. That's their job, not my job. And I think there is always a great danger when government issues too much debt because obviously you have a price impact. We've been very, very fortunate that the surge in federal deficits and the surge in issuance of debt has nonetheless been able to be financed at extremely low rates. And in fact, if you look at the short end of the yield curve, increasingly lower rates. So we're at a very fortunate time, but personally I am deeply concerned about this. And I would suggest for what it's worth, it's just one man's opinion, Um, but go back and read my speeches about our unfunded liabilities. The one that scares me the most is Medicare uh, and the fact that uh, Pete Peterson and his group, a great group of people that have done a lot of analysis, only go out 75 years in their analysis. We at the Dallas Fed go out to an infinite time horizon, and we feel there's almost $100 trillion in unfunded liabilities on that account alone. It's extremely worrisome. I'm glad that the authorities, that is the legislative authorities, are addressing this third rail of politics, and I hope they get it right. Yes, sir, in the back. One of the major uh, reasons for the growth of the mega institutions has been the disparate regulatory cost on smaller banks versus bigger banks. Uh, about a decade or 15 years ago, a number of us looked at this quite carefully and with the anti-money laundering regulations, the know-your-customer, and the cost, if you look at on the little banks, was so much greater than the big banks per customer, and regulation itself was causing this bias towards uh, bigger institutions in the market would have left to its own devices. Well, first, I'm honored to be asked a question by you. I know who you are, and uh, you have quite a distinguished background and reputation. Thank you. Um, The... Federal Reserve banks like mine speak for the community banks and the regional banks. We represent Main Street. I am quite concerned at the regulatory burden that they suffer. Uh, I come from a state that once had only unincorporated banks. Before the Great Depression, there were 30,000 private banks in Texas. All of them failed, except for six, who were grandfathered in the law. And the last one, the Oppenheimer Bank, sort of gradually disappeared. I know this. This. He's passed away now. I managed Dan Oppenheimer's money when I ran my fund. Uh, I worked for Brown Brothers Harriman & Company, the last private bank of size, as you know, as a bank of deposit. Now, you mentioned know your customer, the most sacrosanct rule in banking. Uh, my concern is that with size, risk management models become mathematized, as I like to say, and you get further away from knowing your customer. So obviously, by virtue of my speech and by my temperament and where I live, I'm an advocate for manageable-sized institutions where you actually do know your customer and understand your credits. And from a regulatory standpoint, um, I think all regulators need to take into account the quality of management and the degree to which they actually know the business that they're conducting. So I'm sympathetic to your argument. Uh, We have to be very careful, especially presently, when we're at a period where we need job formation, being a believer, and I think the statistics show that A great many jobs, perhaps not as many as we claim, but are obviously created by small businesses. You don't become big unless you're small first. And we're going to have to figure out, as regulators, the right degree of, and I hesitate to use the word forbearance, but the right degree of treatment in order not to discourage the community and regional banks to fill the gap. Uh, So... Without getting to all the specifics, we conduct ourselves, certainly at the Federal Reserve, the way we look at our institutions and particularly at the Dallas Fed, working with the Board of Governors in a manner that we hope uh, doesn't interfere with the ability of these banks to extend credit if credit is demanded. But we could go through each one of those items. I've heard these concerns mentioned many, many times before, money laundering acts and so on and concerns. we could argue each one of those points. The overall thrust should be to make sure that they conduct their business in a way that is uh, acceptable to the regulators to continue on their operations but at the same time doesn't suffocate their customers. Yes, ma'am. What do you think should be done about the in
0: commercial real estate? And, um, what do you think should be done about the problems in commercial real estate and particularly with regard to the community banks, should we see massive bank failures as a result of that?
1: I I don't think we're going to see massive bank failures. Community banks typically, well, again, I'll personalize this. If you look out my window at the Dallas Fed, you see an enormous amount of tall glass and steel structures. Those weren't financed by community banks. That kind of commercial real estate was financed by REITs and institutional investors. Uh, We have, in our district... Um, our banks are more exposed to, in CRE loans, commercial real estate, than in most other districts. Even on all the other metrics, by the way, just for balance, our banks are twice as healthy as all the other districts. Their exposure to strip shopping centers and loans secured by ranch lands and non-high-rise commercial operations. Um, And... Um, I believe that our banks are healthy enough to carry these things. We've had very few bank failures in the state of Texas. Elsewhere in the country, it is a problem. I don't think there is the political sympathy that one gets for the housing market, for example, and that exposure. And I just think it's going to be a very long workout period. Um, The aspect of commercial real estate that is different is that there are discountable cash flows that one can have a reasonable sense of, depending on how much pickup there is in economic activity. Now, I will submit to you that we have too many retailers in America. Uh, We have too much of everything. And I believe that, for example, strip shopping malls, there will be a shrinkage and there will be significant exposure and there will have to be a great deal of time to work out from that exposure. Uh, It is a significant issue and it's something that uh, we're going to have to figure out a way to deal with, but at the same time not, in my opinion, interfere with the process of adjustment by having too much supply, and the need to shrink that supply to equilibrate with market demand.
0: Why don't we take one more question, maybe one or two, two more?
1: Yes, ma'am. As a Schumpeterian, do you think? I can, I'll repeat it if you want to. As a Schumpeterian, do you think?
0: Do you think Fannie and Freddie should disappear? <laughs> oh, oh, oh,
1: oh, oh. I, I, I won't comment on Fannie and Freddie. Next question
0: if you had a globalization problem
1: with your banks. Me, personally?
0: Oh. Yes, okay. because if you make a decision on too big to fail, you still got to compete. Yeah. In a worldwide economy, and you had a lot of European banks. You even had HSBC over in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. and they were all in on this, mm-hmm. selling mortgages here in the United States as mm-hmm. fast as they could. Mm-hmm. So aren't you going to have to work out some kind of an agreement? They're subject
1: subject that they operate in this country and and to our laws and our regulations. Okay. Um, And I do believe this has to be coordinated internationally. I mean, every one of my colleagues has said that repeatedly. There's an enormous amount of work by very good people, from Federal Reserve people to outsiders like Paul Volcker and others, uh, the the, the Accounting Standards Board, the International Accounting Standards Board, and so on. So this is a widely recognized problem, and I think you're right. I don't think that bigness equates to efficiency. And I remember very well, when I was not in government, the fear we had of the big Japanese banks. It didn't work very well. So personally, I do not believe that you have to have everything concentrated in an or a handful of institutions in order to conduct business globally. And I don't think it will work any more efficiently. In fact, you see this. I mentioned it in my speech in the U.K. and in Europe than it has here. So we're obviously going to have to figure out a way, and everybody has said this, and it makes sense, uh, to make sure that whatever regulatory regime emerges will at least be globally practicable. One more question. In in the back, the gentleman with his hand up. And then...
0: Uh, many of the too big, allegedly too big to fail institutions that you mentioned um, have, in recent months, raised substantial capital, repaid TARP, repaid their TARP warrants, are filing IPOs to spin off divisions, are splitting into, you know, in city's case, a a set of businesses they plan to keep and a set they plan to spin off. As a practical matter, um, there is all these banks have plans to return to some degree of normalcy, and and will probably be petitioning the Fed to reinstate dividends and buy back stock and, and uh, do a lot of those things. Do you think that the, that timetable needs to be accelerated, or what would you uh, do differently, other than what the those institutions themselves have already done?
1: I thought I addressed that in the text of my speech. And that is that we have to decide, or the regulators have to decide, the degree to which they allow taxpayer subsidies to finance risky behavior. And I would propose, and this is one man speaking from just one Federal Reserve Bank's view, that that not be allowed. Now, obviously, if that were to occur in a new regulatory structure, then the plans and designs that you mentioned would have to be reformulated. But time will tell. I thank you again for being so patient. Thank you for having me. And I'm delighted that I wasn't euthanized
0: entirely. Thank you. (laughs) When uh, Mr. Fisher mentioned uh, Milton, I, the only Milton we know around here is Milton Friedman, of course. And he told me Milton was a, a good friend of his and, uh, you know, a good friend of his son's. So uh, anyway, I wanted to thank you very much for your excellent speech, and I uh, thank everybody for coming. Uh, hope you'll come again next year. Uh, now you can head upstairs and uh, have a refreshment. Thanks again. Is that